This is the Industrial IoT Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. We have seen the emergence of what I call modern Internet of Things. It's really the connectivity piece and the data aggregation piece that is usually missing in the infrastructure right now in the market. Welcome to this week's episode of the Market Scale IoT Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. I titled this episode, Making Necessary Evils Obsolete. And the main reason I did that is because it feels like there are certain things in life that we just have decided, oh, okay, this is a necessary evil of life. This is one of those things that we can't do anything about and you just have to learn to live with. But part of what's exciting about technology is that people are able to look at some of those things that we've just kind of made peace with in life and said, you know what, maybe that doesn't have to be that way. Maybe that doesn't have to be the case. And I think that today's episode really looks at two of those things in life where IoT has really come in and said, you know what, we can actually do better with this than than we've done in the past. And maybe this doesn't have to be a necessary evil of life. Maybe we can actually make life better for people. And so those two things that we're going to talk about today are pest control and then safety on the roadways. We've basically accepted in a lot of senses that there's not a ton you can do about either of those things, that there will be accidents on the road and there will be pests that you have to deal with when it comes to rodents and that sort of thing. And so that's what our two features are going to focus on today. The first feature is going to come from our correspondent, Shelby Skirhawk, and she really dives into that world of pest control and how IoT is innovating in that space to make pest control more effective and more possible. After that, we're going to look at a conversation that our correspondent, Elmer Gordado, had with Dr. Kara Cockleman. She's a professor of transportation engineering at the University of Texas. They're going to talk about how IoT and connected automated vehicle technologies can really help make the roadways safer. So we're going to take a look at those two topics today coming up here on the Market Scale IoT podcast. But first is going to be that conversation with Shelby Skirhawk, where she takes a look into the world of pest control and IoT. Coming up next here on the IoT podcast. I don't know if you caught Morgan Spurlock's documentary called Rats on Netflix or on the Discovery Channel, but it's both fascinating and terrifying. And actually, that's the point. The Super Size Me director called it a horror-mentary, a real, very real, in-depth look at rat infestation in major cities like New York City and Mumbai. The 2016 film chronicles the war against rats, in which these persistent rodents have largely outsmarted traditional methods of pest control and extermination. So in the film, the Mafia Don-like character, a cigar-smoking tough guy named Ed Sheenan, he tells us what he's learned over 48 years in pest control. He opens the film saying, They say in New York City there's a rat for every person. I say there's more. He tells... Fascinating tales of alpha rats sending lesser, weaker rats to test out new digs and sample edibles to see if they're poison or not. And not just any poison. This is new, stronger poison that the rats haven't already grown immune to like they have with so many other chemicals in the past. Yep, super rats that have mutated to be better, faster, stronger. Pretty smart vermin. 
It's time those vermin meet the Internet of Things. The Singapore-based company RatSense came up with the rodent monitoring system that uses IoT for real-time monitoring of rat movement and activity. The passive infrared sensors use low-power and wide-area network technology that ensures uninterrupted connectivity for data that'll help exterminators deploy traps more precisely and effectively. In Washington, D.C.'s Rodent Control Division, exterminators are teaming with data scientists to develop a machine learning model to predict rat infestations. Their goal is to build a model that can tell which neighborhoods will see a surge of rats days, even weeks before they happen. In fact, with three years worth of rodent data, the team in DC found that 311 calls related to food and shelter were the strongest predictors of a rat infestation. So, areas where residents called about sanitation violations or tree debris were most likely to see a spike in rat complaints. But, of course, IoT is being used for more than killing rats. Specifically, startups like Semios and IoT Box Systems are putting technology and IoT to work for better, more accurate, and productive pest control. Semios uses sensors and machine vision technology to track pest populations in orchards, vineyards, and other agricultural settings. An Israel-based IoT box systems makes connected bait stations, traps, and cages that inform the user when they've caught an animal. Even what you'd call old-school pest control is getting an IoT update. Victor Pest Control has been designing mousetrap since 1898, when it says it created the world's first spring-based design. Now, Victor has created V-Link, a platform that combines its latest rodent trap technology with the smarts of Comcast's MachineQ IoT network. It takes what Victor learned from its consumer Wi-Fi-enabled traps and applies it to the business sector, responding to the need of professional pest controllers. With so many labor-intensive tasks in pest control, environmental sciences, and agriculture, the application of technology could have a huge impact on each of these industries. IoT is being adapted and leveraged to improve upon a main component of what the pest control industry has become, preventative, says John Cole of ServicePro. Their ServeSuite software provides solutions for the pest control, arbor care, and lawn care industries. He continues, it's improving procedures and information gathering and making a pest control technician more proactive in decision-making and prevention rather than reaction. Being able to be more proactive than reactive. That approach is also making inroads in the agriculture industry. As the global population is set out to increase, the total food requirements are likely to follow. The growth estimate for farming lies at 70% by 2050. That's a big challenge for the agriculture industry. The solution lies in better farming accuracy with the use of connected devices and new technologies. The applications for IoT agriculture range widely. There's precision farming, which uses sensors, control systems, robotics, and autonomous vehicles that make farming more controlled and accurate. There are agricultural drones that are being used to assess the crop health, irrigation, and soil analysis. 
There's livestock monitoring, which helps cattle owners keep track of the health and well-being of their animals, and smart greenhouses that are helping enhance the yield of vegetables, fruits, and crops. As you can see, there are numerous uses for IoT in agriculture. But let me guess, you're still thinking about that rat documentary. I don't blame you. I still have it on my mind, too. But hopefully technology will be the thing that helps overcome and outsmart the rat population, along with the rest of its vermin friends. For MarketScale IoT, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. Thanks again to our correspondent, Shelby Skirhawk, for that look at IoT in pest control and agriculture. Certainly an interesting combination of uh, places where there hasn't been a ton of technology traditionally, but now IoT coming in and really helping innovate that space is certainly an interesting development. Coming up next, our correspondent, Elmore Gordado, sat down with Dr. Kara Cockleman. She's a professor of transportation engineering at the University of Texas, and they talked about how humans are error-prone and cause the vast majority of car accidents. So he asked the question, will automation really help bring these numbers down and increase driver safety? You know, we've kind of just accepted that car wrecks are part of life and part of what we have to do on a day-to-day basis, just getting to and from jobs and to and from other places that we go. So he has this conversation with her where he asks, can automation and IoT really help make our roads safer? And so it's going to be an interesting question that they are going to dive into coming up next here on the Market Scale IoT Podcast. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado, and on this feature, we're sitting down with Kara Cockleman, professor in transportation engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. We're going to talk about automation and IoT devices on the road. We're going to try to understand how much of this tech we're actually seeing on the road, how we're collecting data from it, and discuss whether or not these changes are actually making driving safer. Cara, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. So, Cara, let's provide some context first before we get started. Can you tell us a little bit about what your background is and why you're basically perfect for this topic? Sure. I'm a professor of transportation engineering here at the University of Texas of Austin for the past 21 years. And I do a lot of travel behavior analyses, so a lot of data set acquisition and analysis to anticipate the future of our cities and our regions and our nations and our trade patterns. And so I understand a fair bit about crashes as well as uh, destination choices, vehicle choices, mode choices. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I think outside of an academic context, I think a lot of people don't see the the obvious application for for or, or the obvious value right to this kind of research. So when you're posed with that kind of a question, what do you usually answer that with, right? Like, why is this research so important? And, and what are we trying to gather from it to better understand? Well, transportation is a major part of our lives. We spend about 30% of our household incomes on transportation related items, and then we spend about 20% of our economy, our gross domestic product is transportation-related. So moving people and goods around is kind of essential to most activities. There's very few people that want to stay at home all day, every day. So these vehicles we drive around and the infrastructure that we use is, is very expensive, and and we have to make really thoughtful decisions about how to manage it and how to expand it. 
And yeah, they definitely need people predicting the future about 20 years out to help decide where to invest the limited resources that we do have from our gas taxes and other sources of revenue. So yeah, looking ahead into the future, I think that leads us right into our, our main topic and my first question. And uh, you know, just to kind of get a feel for what we're looking at in this marketplace, generally speaking, where are we at on self-driving cars and internet of things on the road? Are are there more or less on the road than we might think? What What's the general consensus in your field? Well, I think there's a lot more on our vehicles than people would guess. So a lot of the manufacturers have been installing devices for connectivity to kind of test them out because they were expecting the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration to require dedicated short-range connectivity of vehicles in model year 2020, and that didn't happen. Uh, the presidential election led to different administrators in charge, and so it's a bit laissez-faire right now as we wait for 5G cellular, which will you speed up the communications, uh, but also allow a lot of infotainment and sort of non-safety-related applications uh, for travelers. But in the meantime, auto manufacturers are definitely expecting, you know, DSRC or a 5G application. And, and there's valuable reasons to know where those assets are anyhow. And so um, I guess GM has been marketing the OnStar system for many years to help people if they, you know, are in a crash or their vehicle is stolen. They know where those vehicles are. Uh, they do have to pay a little bit each month to, to kind of keep track, much like you do with your cell phone. And so there's an ongoing expense to staying in contact with a vehicle. Um, but there's a lot of data being generated on board vehicles all the time. And there's, you know, the black boxes that, that help uh, record kind of what happens before a crash, as well as um, any malfunctions that are taking place so that when you bring your vehicle into the dealer, they can check for um, reports on, on odd things that have happened so they can keep that vehicle safe and avoid any liability in the future from its manufacturer. So there's there's a, a great reason to stay connected to the vehicle, but you know connectivity is, is not automation. It's much easier than automation. Uh, but we do have automation on our vehicles, and, and some of it is required, which is terrific, like electronic stability control and analog braking systems and those airbags. Uh, so there's a lot of automation already on the vehicle. It's it's kind of minor. You wouldn't notice it. You're still in control of the vehicle um, unless you've bought you know a Tesla or you've, you know, happened to work for Waymo, uh, which is part of Google and Alphabet companies, or um, perhaps Uber, or others that are test driving some very specific vehicles that they probably won't release to you and me for quite a while, but they may uh, contract out to fleet managers that take very good care of the vehicles and sign lengthy contracts, ensuring, you know, the use situations that they permit the vehicles into and the maintenance of those sensors to keep them clean, make sure they're running diagnostics regularly to keep those vehicles safe. And that's how you and I would probably first get into an automated vehicle, a fully automated vehicle, is as a paying passenger, not as an owner. Right. I think that uh, that might be one of those, like, misconceptions, right? A lot of people expect the uh, full automation to just kind of be instantaneous and, and become a, a quick ubiquity, but... That's clearly not the case, right? And and I'm curious, someone like you who gets to look at this uh, in a you know in a different research context, what what is the the general consensus? Are we optimistic about you know not only automation someday, but cars being more and more connected, or is it a a, a fear? Well, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, the amount of property and lives lost and injuries on our roads every year dwarfs congestion costs. 
So if you monetize the cost of crashes on our public roads, as reported to the police every year, it's almost a trillion dollars a year. So it's about $800 billion, and that's several thousand dollars per person in this country per year. And those kinds of costs aren't unusual. I mean, 1.1 million lives are being lost around the world every year. So it's really car crashes are kind of the number one sort of accidental, you know, um, non-health-related death in, anywhere in the world practically. And for many age categories, it is the most dangerous thing you do. So there's great value there to have the vehicles try to take over, like automated emergency braking, I think should be mandated now. Just like electronic stability control and analog braking systems and front airbags, automated emergency braking should be mandated now. And the vehicle takes over. When it senses there's something in front of you, it's not going to let you hit it. And that's a very common crash type, and it may not kill you, but it certainly will slow you down and cost a lot of money for you and your insurance company. And, uh, and you know, whoever you hit, they're also involved, or they hit you, and so it'd be really nice to avoid those, just like um, rear backup cameras and warnings that, that maybe just audibly alert you so you stop before you run over something that's kind of low that you haven't noticed. Even though you're an excellent driver, there's all sorts of things we don't see as we move out of parking spaces between two vehicles and we're trying to see out the back. It's, it's tough. And so any assistance we can get is wonderful. Right, right. And so, I mean, it seems like you're, you're, you're talking about this in a very matter-of-fact way. So, does that mean we've hit a point where you know we we're, we've been able to gather enough empirical data to believe that this is uh, you know legitimately a safer option? Because I think there is that fear still, right? Like we haven't hit that point of of ubiquity where some people are still scared of a fully automated vehicle future or even more and more connectivity to their cars. So generally, are are, are we are, do we have enough data now to to confidently say that you know we're, we're going in the right direction? Oh, yeah, I think we've had that. Uh, one of the concerns I would have is people losing driving skills. And so there's, it's important to, you know, practice maybe electronically or digitally on a computer screen, um, practice driving so that if you do need to rent a car, maybe in a, a country uh, that doesn't have a lot of these self-driving vehicles available, and this would be like in 30 years, but imagine um, that you need to suddenly start driving when you've been relying on an automated, a fully automated vehicle, which is still a long way out, but uh, imagine that. That That is, is a scary proposition. So people do it. You know, they move to the U.S., they're adults, that we have a very auto-centric lifestyle, I'm afraid, here, and so they have to get their driver's licenses, and, and adults do it without having training as a as a young person, and that's that's very scary, but it, it is feasible. It's just uh, higher risk. You have to be really cautious when you move into a non-automated vehicle if you've become used to one, and that's the biggest risk I see. There's also abusive like, you know, jaywalking and things like that and other uh, drivers assuming that the vehicle will stop for them so they, they take aggressive actions that they shouldn't be doing. And um, I think with cameras on the vehicles, and, and this has proven true over time, cameras help reduce crime and, and bad behaviors because they can identify the license plate of that vehicle or maybe the face of, of that pedestrian. And if, if somebody's caught doing that multiple times, you know, we can we can charge a fine, that kind of thing. So I, I think there's ways to get around sort of the downsides that we're seeing, and the evolution is pretty natural. I mean, automated emergency braking, you'd probably sign up to buy that right now in the showroom, and you can. 
Uh, so having a vehicle drive you everywhere is, is nerve-wracking, and a lot of people were scared to get into airplanes, and, and some people still are. You know, you don't have control, and so you really have to trust, and you have to look at the data. You have to look at the numbers of times that your friends have come back alive from air travel. Um, so commercial jets are very, very safe, and uh, I think most people logically know that, even though they're not in control. Yeah, no, for sure, and I think that that point of ubiquity, that that, that breaking point is is what ends up making all the difference, right? Because I think, yeah, flying is a perfect example, but even more recently, right, like at the beginning of, of Uber and Lyft, everyone was terrified of the idea of getting in a stranger's car, and now it's a point where, you know, we don't even really think about it as much. So I, I, I think we're, we're definitely heading in that direction. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit beforehand about ZenDrive, right, this new software that's that's for mobile phones that's and has it uses the sensors on your smartphone to measure and improve driving behavior and give you back data and analytics and i wonder if it, it seems like it's not but i wonder if you know things like this and 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 more uh i guess options right in in in, in being able to improve your your driving and your safety do you think this is you know just par for course and it's like a stepping stone into the full automated future or is this uh a more realistic option, I guess, right? Because I think you, like you mentioned, right? Like we're, we're probably not going to hit that fully automated where everyone has a fully automated vehicle immediately, but we are more likely to get into fully automated uh, transportation in general. So w- what are your thoughts on, you know, everything we're seeing right now just across the industry? Yeah, well, phones are remarkable devices. I mean, they carry so many distinctive applications that are useful to us. It's it's fantastic, and so they've proven to be of much higher value than many people initially anticipated, and having an app on there to kind of, if you can secure the phone in your vehicle so that it's not experiencing movement inside the vehicle, but it stays with the vehicle, it can certainly give you a sense of your hard brakes, your excessive centrifugal forces, so that'd be um, taking turns very tightly, things like that, which are often, you know, beyond your control. So if you are driving in a neighborhood or on roadways where there's there's lots of crazy drivers or really um, high turns, that's, that's important information, I guess, for you to know, but maybe more important for your insurance company or your parents. And so there's a lot of apps out there. Drive is not that uh, distinctive to me uh, versus some of the apps that parents have. They want to know uh, where their kids are and how they're driving because a lot of kids trash the first car that their parents give them to drive, and that's uh, very expensive for these households. Um, so any new driver is extremely important to get that feedback. I have a Prius, which I, I love, and I keep it on that immediate feedback of how hard I'm loading the engine because uh, it has red and green zones and I know when I'm recharging that battery, it's wonderful. I don't really like the score it gives me at the end of my drive because that has much more to do with the roads I'm driving on rather than the way I'm driving them versus another driver. But just to have a sense of that engine load feedback immediately is is super valuable. And and cars and and then, of course, the phone um, doesn't have, you know, that information unless it's connected. Uh, to the onboard unit. So if you do that, you can also have the phone giving that information uh, if if the manufacturer allows it. So that's a little bit of a firewall there. Um, manufacturers don't really want phones uh, communicating with the computers on board in case they could override some of the logic and, and, and hack into the system and create some, some bad behaviors. But 
yeah, phones are a wonderful way for insurance companies or parents or individuals and, and of course, fleet managers to understand how the driver may be doing. Right, right. Definitely just, uh, I mean, more data is never a bad thing. <laughs> In the right hands, it's not a bad thing. That's, that's a way better phrased. Um, so one of the last things I wanted to ask you about was about one of the the articles you wrote and worked on, which was valuing the safety benefits of connected and automated vehicle technologies. So can we talk a little bit about just the general gist of uh, what the goal of this was and maybe some of your you know more interesting or, or, or surprising findings? Sure. So I've you know published, I guess, over 20 papers on crashes, but this was the first paper where we looked specifically at the kinds of crashes Americans are getting into, at least the ones they're reporting to police, and which ones are those, the, the different styles of devices or uh, technologies we have on our vehicles can help prevent or ameliorate. So if it can start slowing you down sooner, you may still hit the obstacle in the road, but you hit it at a much lower speed. And if that obstacle is another vehicle, or an unprotected and very vulnerable pedestrian or cyclist or deer, you know, that that person or that animal has a much higher chance of surviving that crash. And so um, we looked at each type of crash. There's, you know, 20 to 40 different styles that you can uh, categorize and to get a sense of which devices and technologies and algorithms would be most useful in preventing each to come up with a cost-benefit analysis of, of whether these these devices would save a lot of money for the the nation. And in fact, we come up with sort of on the order of 90% uh, under full automation and all vehicles automated. So if if you just, you know, automate and add um, safety technologies to your vehicle, you still have people crashing into you and crashes you can't avoid due to bad behavior by others. And, And there's always things beyond our control. I mean, uh, maybe motorcyclists and uh, pedestrians and, and deer and other animals and, um, you know, bad storms. These things are very tough to control. So you can't get away from every type of crash. But, um, yeah, about 90% reduction. And so that's 90% of $80 billion a year. That's a lot of savings per vehicle and, you know, suggests that we might even want to subsidize this technology. But we certainly should start to require an evolution in that direction. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, uh, you know, finally, the, the, the last thing I really wanted to ask you about is, you know, just kind of looking forward with all these different IoT and tech devices infiltrating the transportation industry in various ways. Are there any fears to have at all looking forward or, or, or is there anything specific that, you know, we're we're looking forward or any expectations about adoption rates? What What can we, you know, infer from what we've gathered thus far? Well, I mean, if you love driving, you know, you don't have to fight this that hard because we will give you tracks to drive on. So if you're going to be around in 30, 40 years when we maybe say no more human driving because it's just too risky, it's just too difficult to manage and we need our intersections to flow a lot better and you're you require red and green signals and at this intersection there's no pedestrians or bicyclists so we really need to have automated flow management and you driving around in in human mode is is a problem for us and you're and you're much more likely to strike a pedestrian or something than these automated vehicles that we've been witnessing for decades now so eventually we are not going to allow you to drive maybe on Sunday mornings between 9 and 10 we'll allow you to drive in that mode but otherwise um, you know, you're going to be off on a racetrack. 
um, driving, just like horses, are not permitted on, except with very special permits on public roads. So I don't, I don't think anybody should be too worried about that. A lot of us will not be around when that rule is enacted, and although we may see it enacted in downtowns, and so sort of, you know, how we have pedestrian-only places, we may have, you know, automated driving-only places in, in many cities to try to protect um, people that are downtown from from human drivers. Um, the other things, of course, were those abuses that I was talking about and and, and then the loss of the driving ability. Uh, so that would become a problem if you went to a place that, that had lots of human-driven vehicles and you were very unused to it. You would have to pay for a ride in those settings and um, or rent a self-driving vehicle and learn how to, uh, you know, use it if they, if they offer it. But... Um, I think I don't see too many issues there. I, I know that humans are, you know, losing some mental faculty by relying on um, maps that are or routes that are given to them by a phone rather than, you know, spatially recognizing destinations versus origins and figuring out um, intellectually how to do that on their own. And that's a little bit scary to become very dependent on technology, which we've seen, uh, and I think we'll continue to see that. And, and children being brought up in the screen age, uh, so that's you know, a little nerve-wracking, but I don't think we should be too worried about automation helping drivers over time and then eventually taking the role of the driver. Well, that's good to hear. Cara, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, and uh, I appreciate your time, and thank you for being so candid with me. Of course. Take care. Thank you to our correspondent, Elmore Gordado, and to Dr. Kara Cockleman for that conversation. Just a really interesting look at the intersection of IoT and automotives and just can we make our roadways safer? It's a really interesting question, and you wonder how technology can continue to innovate and uh, change that space going forward. That's all we have time for, unfortunately, for this week's episode of the IoT Podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I enjoyed having you here on the show along with me. We'll be back soon again with another episode of the IoT Podcast. But to hold you over until then, we do have a lot of written content as well as more podcasts just like this one over at marketscale.com. So if you click on the industries page there and go down to IoT, you can find a lot more content just along these lines uh, in the world of IoT. And you know, there's a lot of overlap in that world of IoT as well. So if you go check out our software and technology page, there's some overlap there with uh, the world of IoT. And then you can find more even in ProAV and in lots of other areas. So IoT doesn't just live on that one page. You can go find it elsewhere as well. And uh, it'll be just more content along these same lines for you to enjoy and to consume. We will be back soon with another episode of the IoT Podcast, but until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.